0: So there's another good example of what you're believing that becomes your truth, which is not the truth. So if he believes he couldn't run to his right as quickly, he wasn't running to his right as quickly. A simple example would be as an anorexic believes that they're fat, lives their life like it's the truth, even though it's not. That's why the truth is important. This is Dr. Nick Molinaro, licensed psychologist with specialty in sports psychology, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm interviewing Dr. Nick Molinaro. Uh, who is a licensed psychologist with 35 years of experience. Uh, He specializes in clinical counseling psychology, sports psychology, executive assessment, and performance enhancement. Uh, Dr. Nick helped me through one of the most difficult times of my life, uh, which was immediately following my football injury, and I'm honored to have him on the show today to hopefully help some of you listeners uh, like he helped me. Today, the focus of our conversation is going to be on the importance of mindset in both performance and recovery from injury. So, Dr. Nick, I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I can't thank you enough for what you've done for me, you know, throughout my life, and it's cool to have you on the podcast to, you know, help some of the listeners that I've set out to do, because, you know, without talking to you, I don't know if I even would have ever started a a podcast like this, so I know you always had my back, so can you just start off by telling us a little bit about your, your background and maybe some of the
0: teams that you've covered over the years? Sure, thank you very much Kevin for asking me to be on your show and I'm glad to see you doing very well and uh, it was always a pleasure working with you. My experience has been in uh, performance psychology and sports psychology over the past 35 years. And I was actually had the opportunity to interview with the Jets uh, for a position there, the things didn't work out. Um, I won't go into the specifics, but it had to do with leadership. Okay. Uh, in, in any case, uh, what I'm uh, the teams I'm working with now are the Yale lacrosse team. I saw uh, that. And um, I'm going to be working with the uh, coaches from uh, Johns Hopkins lacrosse team. I'll we'll see whether or not we'll actually work with that team. I've been working with the uh, head coach at Lafayette's lacrosse team, and we've decided to work with him for about six months before we actually started working with the team. I think it's a great way to do the work that I do is to actually have a coach understand my work so that he can actually implement this more effectively with the team. And so we'll be working with Lafayette. And I have the privilege actually today to um, evaluate 45 coaches at uh, Washington Lee University. So the entire coaching staff is who I'm evaluating this afternoon.
1: Okay, so that's interesting that it's kind of like the the coaches are the gatekeeper, I guess, because they probably spend the most time with the athletes, so... Right. What they're telling them is...
0: (laughs) Well, you know, the interesting thing about sport, uh, no matter what level you're at, you know, if you're a junior athlete or if you're world class, you're always working on the basic skills, right? Right. And that's what the coach's responsibility is for. No one's 100%, 100% of the time. And if there's an error in any sport, it's based on a basic, right? There's someone missed a basic element in their performance. So... Why not begin with the coaches?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good foundational start. Yep. Um, I know when we were talking in our email correspondence, you you had a a quote that resonated with me really well, and I think it's a good way to kind of kick off the the main topic of this interview. And it's a, a quote by Henry Ford. You said, uh, or he said, uh, "Whether you think you can or think you can't, you are probably right." And I know that that's been something. That's I've struggled with as an athlete um, in terms of like performance. You know, I know I ha- I came to you when I had some throwing issues in baseball uh, because I was afraid to throw the ball away and stuff like that. So that's something that was definitely true for me. And I actually just finished up an interview. So our, our last week's interview, um, I interviewed a guy named Kevin Malist, and we were talking about he played in the NFL and played at Rutgers. And he was talking. We were talking about ways to, uh, to like stay healthy. And one of the things he said is just like don't think about getting hurt he's like the moment that you think about getting hurt you know that's like probably when you're gonna get hurt right um so i thought that was interesting so can you kind of just um talk a little bit more about that quote and how it resonates with
0: you sure so thinking is the foundation for everything we do right so everything begins in our brain if I told you, don't think about pink elephants, what are you thinking about? Pink elephant, for So sure. I told you not to do that. So if you're an athlete and you're telling yourself not to do something, not to make an error, clearly your attention is then going to be directed to what you're not supposed to be doing. Right. I going to work with golfers that have problems with the yips. They go up to the ball and they're telling themselves, don't yip, and clearly it's going to happen. Right. So our thinking is the foundation for our execution. What we intend on doing, which is the basis for all of our behaviors, is, is based in our mind, right? So if you intend on playing at your optimal level, you should go out and play at your optimal level. However, that may only be an idea. Unless you really believe something, your performance won't be affected as, as well just by telling yourself. So there's to a do. difference
1: between an idea and belief. And belief,
0: yes. Right. So you can think anything you want, you can think that it's going to snow today. But that's only a thought. I don't (laughs) think you believe that, right? (laughs) Right. But the interesting thing about beliefs is that they don't always tell us the truth. I mean, people go to war, die and kill other people based on what they believe. So the problem is with athletes, we really need to get into their mindset and understand what their beliefs are. And so one of the things I do is I assess every athlete that I see on this test that measures 20 mental skills. And we can tell where their attention is going to be.
1: What was that test called? I know. I. Yes,
0: right. The test of attentional and interpersonal style.
1: T-A-I-S. Yes. Yes.
0: Yep. So that's what helps us figure this out. So we are always looking at where the player's attention is just before they execute. So your intention drives your attention. Your attention drives your decision making. When you intended to come to my office today, you got in the car and just drove over here. Right. Your intention was to arrive here. Your attention was driving a car. And even though at some point in time you weren't even thinking about it, if a deer jumped in front of you, you would have stopped the car. Right. Most of our behaviors are subconscious. So our our intention drives our attention. And that's how the way we train athletes is to see where their attention is at time of execution. Okay. If your mindset is that you can execute that you can remain focused that's a lot different than playing defensively i'm not sure i'm going to perform today so whether you think you can or whether you think you can't the way you go actually go into the performance is going to be affected very much by the mindset
1: okay i know when we were working with when i was working with you for my throwing you told me to think of like not thinking about throwing the ball away but replace that thought with uh a positive thoughts so i would think about this one touchdown that i scored like the year before that was like my favorite run or something so i would like play that through my head like while i was throwing and then i wouldn't think about throwing the ball away and it <laughs> and it worked right so is that kind of what you were what you're alluding to
0: yes i mean so most of our behaviors are subconscious right so you can't think quickly enough to even to say the words you're going to say right your subconscious mind is directing us so if you're in a mindset that is what's called an open mindset and allows yourself to be very free, you won't be affected by negative thoughts. So when you're throwing a ball, you can't think of all the different mechanisms. When you're running, when you're firing a cross shot, you, you can't think about that stuff. Right. Actually, performance under pressure changes our behavior so that what has been subconscious, our conscious mind interferes with. Right. We overthink.
1: I was definitely a a victim of that, (laughs) for sure. Um, So the the next topic is uh, confidence versus efficacy. Right. And we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but can you just start off by kind of giving the true definitions of each one and kind of differentiating them? And then we'll,
0: we'll dig a little deeper. When you look at the definition of confidence in the dictionary, you're going to find three. One is a belief about an ability to perform. The other is a feeling about an ability to perform. And the third one is a belief and a feeling about the ability to perform. Now, do your beliefs always tell you the truth? No. No. People go to war, die, and kill other people based on what they believe. Do your feelings always tell you the truth?
1: Mm, I don't know.
0: Well, when you were a kid, were you ever afraid of the darkness? Yeah. Yeah. Turn the lights on, you weren't afraid. Turn the lights off. The boogeyman is going to get you, right? Right, because you could see, yeah. Right, okay. So that's a good example. Feelings don't always tell us the truth. So now we have a problem with the definition of confidence because two of the elements that are essential in the definition aren't actually true 100% of the time. So we talk about efficacy, and I use the example of medication. So the FDA is concerned about two basic things about all drugs. Is it safe, and is it... Efficacious. Does it do what it says it's going to do?
1: So, uh, y- efficacy is like effective.
0: Efficacy is effective. It's competency, and in one word, it's truth. So, if you took Advil for a headache, it wouldn't matter if you took it on Monday morning or Tuesday afternoon, a holiday or a weekend or, uh, you know, whatever the season was. Right. Advil always does what it says it's going to do. If a player had high self-efficacy then he or she would know that when they got out into their performance, that the truth about their ability to do something influences performance at such a high level. I can give you a very simple example. Two girls that I worked with were high jumpers. I saw each of them for one hour. One girl was going into uh, the counties a couple years ago, and she had been jumping 5'4 the whole year. Um, The year before that, she jumped 5'4. So she wanted to get back up to 5'4, I spent time with her talking about what one thing could she do well to get over the bar. And she told me. And I explained to her how to use that. Next day, she jumped five six. What? Another girl this year who actually broke her school record and was on to... Well, the what
1: was that one thing that she thought about, though? Do you um, remember?
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, it, for her, uh, different than the other athlete I'm going to talk about, for her, it was what she needed to do um, in her approach. Okay. So she became distracted in her steps up to the bar. And as a result of being distracted, she wasn't performing well. So I asked her if she could actually you know, make the movement. Could she get her legs over? Could she move her body the way she needed? Could she you know, explode all out, of her f- out of her feet? And she knew that she could do that. That's where her attention went. So I knew that if we directed her attention there, her performance would increase. Okay. The other high jumper um, jumped 5'5 in order to make the nationals. And she'd only been jumping 5'2 up to this point. And what we had to work on was the position of her head because she was looking a certain way, and if she turned her head, her bottom would drop. So all we had to do was get her to answer the question, can you keep your head in this very specific position? We looked at the video. She clearly demonstrated it. But when she was under pressure, she questioned whether or not she had the ability to do it in spite of the fact that the truth was she could.
1: Right, she knows that she could do it. That's
0: right. So that's all I focused on with her and a week later she jumps five five and makes it to the nationals. So when we look at the whole concept around efficacy of the truth, right? What's the truth about every player? So players will come into me and they'll tell me how they're feeling about things and I'll listen to it. I'll say, What's the truth? Go get it done. And in an essence, as long as they're focused on the specific activity physically, their performance goes up dramatically.
1: Okay. Um now I know I don't. This could be a completely irrelevant question, but you know how people say like, uh, ov- like you could be going into something overconfident. I know like confident isn't really the definition that you use. That's right. So can you be overly
0: efficacious? I think there's a difference. I think in in is the that, confidence, that's the right word. W- efficacious. Yes, it is efficacious, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, I think that the whole issue about overconfidence means that the person is paying probably too much attention to how they're feeling or what they're believing that's what i think overconfidence is now if you're performing at your highest level none of that's in your mind you're just performing okay there's a very big difference so the the problem with the whole mindset and what i hear with coaches tell me all the time and tell players is that you have got to feel confident about this and i argue to point no you don't and my question is to a player can you do it go get it done so if a, if a player is overconfident, they're paying too much attention to how they feel about it and what they believe. But as I'm telling you, if you're firing a lacrosse shot at 100 miles an hour, I don't think you're thinking about whether or not you're confident or not. You're just playing.
1: You're just doing it, yeah. It's just playing. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yep. Now, how does this play into, say, do you have like an example from an injury standpoint? You know, like... Coming back from an injury. Yes,
0: yes, great. It happens to have been a player at uh, Rutgers, uh, a baseball I player. I think there's a
1: testimonial on your website from this player. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> so, uh,
0: and he had, uh, he was an outfielder, and he had um, torn his ACL. And I think he was running to his right. And he was a left fielder. So, after he came through the surgery, he had problems running to his right. Now, he could run to his left fine. And although he was cleared, you know, by the docs, He had this basic belief um, that he couldn't do it as effectively. It wasn't true, but he believed that. After a short period of time and the use of hypnosis, uh, he went out and he was fine. Okay. So there's another good example of what you're believing that becomes your truth, which is not the truth. So if he believed he couldn't run to his right as quickly, he wasn't running to his right as quickly. Right. A simple example would be as an anorexic believes that they're fat, lives their life like it's the truth even though it's not right. That's why the truth is important.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And that kind of leads, there's a good transition into my next question in that, you know, what, how do you go about hypnotizing someone and kind of like, is it a way of like lying to yourself? You know, like if you keep telling yourself something like over and over again, like do you eventually believe it?
0: Well, it's not like that at all. First of all, (laughs) and, Hypnosis is a is a very natural state. Uh, people are in it more times than you're not. Uh, you may have driven from one point to another and not remembered how you got there. Plenty of times, and, yeah. Okay, and at some point in time, you might even look around and say, "I'm not even sure where I am. Did I go past wherever?" Luckily,
1: they don't and, think that's uh, happened to me yet. But okay.
0: <laughs> well, when you get my age, it will happen. I go to the, the fridge times. and I
1: forget what I wanted right. or something, yeah. or like <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff.
0: Okay. Well, when you're when you're driving, and you're actually in, sometimes in an, like an altered state that um, you don't have to pay attention to what you're doing. Your subconscious mind is, is doing all of this. In hypnosis, which is when the person's actually hypnotizing themselves, I don't actually hypnotize them. I just teach them how to do that. And getting a person into is really a very natural state, and during that period of time, the person may be more suggestible to things that they want to do. You can never suggest to someone something to do that they don't want to do. Right, okay. So it's not about false beliefs,
1: because if the, yeah, it's, if it's not something they want to do, they're not going to believe it. So like, that's right. What's the challenge of? I mean, I'm sure some people aren't open to the hypnosis, and they're like, you know, that's that's some some voodoo crap. I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah. So well, how do you get people <laughs> to open up to the idea to believe? Uh,
0: well, you know, that's a really great question. When I first studied this, I thought it was voodoo crap as well. And back in the day, we we couldn't see what was actually taking place in the brain. Now you can look at. You know, it scans and be able to see the, the changes. So typically, most athletes are very coachable, right? And so if they're here and I just make the suggestion, would you try it? They're usually pretty open to it.
1: That's true. Yeah, if they come in your door, they're like yeah. willing to try, I guess. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. and fortunately, because they've been able to help some people, they'll say, you know, whatever it takes.
1: Right. All right, cool. Um, so the next topic is trust versus faith. I'm really interested in this one. Uh, so, like, what are your definitions of trust and and faith and h- how they play into performance?
0: Sure. So, trust, um, uh, how do you trust someone? Usually, or trust yourself, there's usually some proof associated with that, right? Over time, also. Over time. But, you know, like, when you go to see a doctor, um, and if you've never met the doctor... You might trust the doctor because they demonstrate that they have diplomas around and they've finished certain things. So there's some proof, typically, in trust. Gotcha. Now, you can trust someone until they're not demonstrating their trustworthiness. That's possible. But for the most part, if you take a look at trust, there's proof that's involved with this. You would agree? Yeah. So in athletes, they're looking at their performance, and coaches will talk about that. Trust it. You've demonstrated these skills. Why can't you do this uh, in competition? So, trust really has a foundation in proof. Now, faith doesn't. Faith requires no proof, and there's no doubt, and it's future-oriented. Okay. So, when I ask people, do you have faith, then the first thing that comes up is God. Right. That's so what I was saying, yeah, uh, spirituality. Yes, and certainly I can talk about that. Um, but if we look at faith as a process, it requires that the person believes, so that both trust and, be- and and faith are beliefs trust is a belief with proof faith is a belief without proof mm-hmm. so a person who has faith in themselves will now face things that they've never done before because it is future oriented so you know, imagine a first world series for a player d- are they going to believe that they have the ability to say well you can trust you've been swinging the ball you're swinging the bat, <laughs> you might be swinging the ball um <laughs> So the guy goes in and says, yeah, you know, I have this ability. Or maybe he uses his efficacy. When you have faith, it it moves to another level. You don't have to prove it to yourself. You know that that's the truth about your ability. Okay. So if you've ever done something you've not had the experience with before.
1: That's when you're relying on Mm -hmm.
0: faith. That's when you're relying on faith. And you might use some elements of trust because of proof. But when you get to the highest level of functioning, there's a faith and there's no doubt. About your ability to perform, you take a look at Jordan Spieth, and you know, uh, in the uh, British Open, and you saw how he performed, and looked like he may have been done by the time he got to 13. And uh, I've not worked with Spieth, although I've worked with Gavin Hall, who's replaced him, at um, Utex. and watch for Gavin Hall. I'll tell you, he's going to be a player. A stud. Uh, yeah, he's a great player. So in any case, when you when you take a look at Jordan, uh, as young as he is. He's had some experience, but he hasn't had as much experience as some of the other players. He can use trust in terms of his skill set, but to be able to continue to move through that, I would believe that he was using faith in himself to perform at a higher level. so there's no doubt and if you watched him, it was like there was no doubt with him, in spite of the fact that he's a very young
1: player. What do you look for the like what made you say that he had no doubt like? His demeanor or just his performance?
0: Um, I think if you look at his demeanor, if you look at his energy, uh, you know, around the time that there was a a judgment about some calls and he was waiting for the rules official. And throughout that entire time, just watched what he was doing. And he acted in a way like he was going to pursue this at the highest level. So that's an inference. But, you know, you didn't have, like, looks on his face or body language that told you that he had any doubt. That's okay. the way I would assess it.
1: This is kind of a tangent question, sure. but for body language, how much does that actually translate to performance? You know, because like I remember when I was at Rutgers as a student manager, all the coaches would constantly be getting on the guys about like, Body language, you know, like don't look defeated. And same thing when I was playing, our coaches would say the same thing: like you have your head down. Like, how much does body language actually correlate to the actual like product being produced on the field?
0: Excellent question. So, if you look at the studies about body language, um, you know, one of the things we observe is what's called the frontalis, this muscle right here, your forehead. Um, it is the most susceptible muscle to stress. So, someone might be smiling, but if if they're Forehead is the kind of a furrowing brow, you know, they're not telling you the truth. Right. Okay. So, what does that do? I mean, so if we go back to what a belief is, your belief gets manifested in what you do. If you truly believed, either you had faith in yourself or efficacy or trust, and you walked onto the field that way, you're going to demonstrate that. So, the answer to this is I think it's very, very important. Wrestlers will tell me, as soon as they step onto the mat, they can tell. Where the, where the other, uh, where the opponent is, because they look at their body language. Football players might not be as easy because of the mask and mass, stuff yeah. like <laughs> that. But so I think the body language uh, really does reflect that. I think that th- the whole attitude is about being in the moment. It's not about whether you're going to win or lose. It's about being in the moment. Okay. Absolutely. And we know that 70, 80 percent of all communications is based upon nonverbal cues or body language.
1: Okay. So now where does trust versus faith come in when it, in terms of injuries?
0: So I would take a look back at this player, and you know, he didn't know that he was going to be able to get through this. You know, so he could have trusted uh, you know, his performance in the past, but when he was in his practices, he wasn't running to his right very well. Right. So if we look at trust then, and he hasn't been able to demonstrate that to himself. So th-
1: now he's missing like the proof component?
0: That's right, exactly. exactly. So in that example, if he was paying more attention to the proof, he would not have used faith. And so we got to the point of helping him, and he's a, and he's a spiritual kid too. So when we had a conversation uh, about faith, this means belief, and this becomes your truth. And there's no question about it. Oh, I can do it. I'm done. That's it. It's a very, very different mindset. So,
1: wait, I'm confused. So, So, he's like accepted. Once it turned to faith.
0: There was no doubt.
1: There's no doubt and... But like, where did that come from?
0: Well, that's what faith is. There's no proof. Okay. And there's no there's doubt. No proof, right. And so, uh, I guess it, that's I'm, why I
1: still struggle with the whole faith thing. <laughs> it, well,
0: it's it's not easy. So, it uh, when you get to a point of understanding and having the experience that there is a truth um, that you can hold so dearly, and there's no doubt about it. You just act that way in a very consistent behavior. Right. So people who have faith in themselves or faith in God will use that, and, and it guides them. And there's no doubt. It doesn't hold them back.
1: It, it's no secret that I'm a huge Tim Tebow fan on the podcast. <laughs> okay. He's like my favorite guy okay. of all time. Okay. So
0: he's someone who's obviously uses
1: faith and credits it for a lot of his right. successes, right? Right. So I've always admired that, but I never like quite understood it. So it's it seems to me that it's something right. like you just need to... It's just you just need to do it and like it, you just need to believe without the proof i guess
0: well it you know it's kind of hard i think you can have the conversation you know with yourself or with others um on the fellowship of christian athletes i was gonna bring that up yeah. actually and uh so we we do a lot of work with uh, christian athletes uh i was over at kutztown university where we had 600 student athletes uh, and a lot of volunteers working with kids and So in any case, when you look at faith as the process, whether it's belief in God or belief in yourself, it will run through you. And it's what we can describe as your spirit, right? So when you are playing sports or when you exercise now, right, there's an energy that's kind of like what you might describe as the soul or it just kind of moves you through this, right? Yeah,
1: you feel like... I always, I always say it, like, I tell my girlfriend all the time, I'm like, these are the kind of days that make me never want to go to work ever again. Right. Like, when you're just, like, in tune with, like, the earth.
0: Right. And yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that might be the zone, but when we look at, and there's a great book called Sport and Spirituality by Nesti, N-E-S-T-I. And in his work, he talks about the use of spirituality. Now, he talks about it in religion, but he talks about it non-religiously as well. And so spiritually, what drives you to perform at your highest level? And in my work, after I do the basics of mind mechanics training with athletes, any of the athletes that stay here for more than two years will eventually get into what I would describe as the deepest level of performance, of looking at the spirituality that actually governs them and directs them. And there's not a question about their performance. You know what I'm talking about. When you've seen players that are like that, nothing stops them. Right. And it's their spirituality. Whatever. Like Tim Tebow. Like Tim Tebow. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a difference between faith and spirituality? Um, spirituality is as is the uh manifestation, I think, of the faith.
1: Okay. Uh I'm also curious, like when you do like when you had to do all your schooling to become a psychologist, do they have classes on like faith and and like spirituality? Because I, I only ask this because uh I've interviewed Doctor Jared Spencer from Mind of the Athlete right. out in Bethlehem. Yes. And he's big into the fellowship yes. of Christian athletes yes. stuff too, so I was just curious like right if that's a, a common topic or are you guys just naturally like drawn towards the profession <laughs> because of you know who you are?
0: Well, that's a great question. No, there were no uh, courses that I had in spirituality. Uh, in my undergraduate from Scranton, I have a minor in theology and a minor in philosophy. Okay. Um, so, you know, way back then, but certainly in my uh, two masters and doctorate, I didn't have any coursework uh, in spirituality or religion. So how do you
1: deal with athletes who experience setbacks and sometimes multiple setbacks in still have in still maintaining that level of faith because like a lot of times that faith is probably tested frequently i know i was someone who was in that position right. had the the head injury then i had right. the infection then i had the allergic right. reactions like one thing after another it's probably easy for athletes to kind of lose hold of that faith so how do you yeah. get them to, to to remain holding on
0: Well, if a person is faith-based, then it becomes easier to have the conversation because we also see that as a test, okay? So that um, in um, a spiritual perspective, uh, people are tested to see whether or not their spirituality and their faith is going to continue. If we're looking at someone who doesn't have that as their basis, maybe one of the times where somebody might be more open to that. So we kind of explain, you know, what are you using to make the judgments about your performance? Is it based upon your feeling, which we already showed you? doesn't always tell you the truth. Is it based upon what you're believing? And beliefs don't always show you the truth. So I always am addressing those two basic dynamics of all athletes um, to determine what process they're using mostly that's governing their direction and their behavior. And typically it's those combinations, which frequently are erroneous. And as I help them understand that, then their mind starts to become a little bit more open and we have a chance to kind of inject some other things in there.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So what sports seem to affect athletes mentally the most? Are there like sports huh. in particular that you see a lot of, uh, of your clients that, that come in here?
0: Yeah. If you take a look at the research, um, the number one sport that uses our services uh, is golf. Yeah, just taking a look at your room, <laughs> I, could, I could see that, yeah. Well, I've been fortunate to work with some really good players, uh, Paige Sporanik. I don't know if you know who Paige is, but Paige is one of my clients. Okay. And uh, I've been on the PGA Tour, Neil PGA Tour, and um, the Ladies European Tour, uh, and been to four U.S. Opens. Nobody at the Masters or the Ryder Cup yet, but we're hoping. Um, so um, so what we, we call closed sports. You know, a sport where things aren't changing, nobody's trying to knock you down. Gotcha, right? okay. So in golf, the ball is just sitting there, and it's the only sport where you're not looking at the target when you're firing at it, right? Right. But that sport requires something of a person that they don't do in any other aspect of their life. It's a pretty interesting dynamic. Most people don't know that. What you do in golf, you don't do in any other aspect of your life. So you play golf. Yeah, not okay.
1: always well, but... Yeah. Uh, that's
0: okay. Well, come see me. <laughs> yeah. In uh, any case, so in golf, in you know, four a four-and-a-half-hour round, how much time does it take to swing the golf club 72 times?
1: Like 72 seconds? <laughs> you're very
0: close. It's 90 seconds. So It's 1.3 to 1.5 seconds times 72. So about 90 seconds. So a minute and a half, you're swinging a golf club if you're shooting par, and clearly guys like me are taking a little bit more than that. Um, what are do you doing the rest of the time? Don't answer the question. How much time is required to play golf at the highest level using your focused attention? It's 25 minutes. So think of another thing that you do that in four and a half hours, it requires that you spend 25 minutes of intense concentration and losing that and bringing yourself back into it.
1: Yeah, constantly. Constantly.
0: Constantly. Um, So the ability to become distracted and bring yourself right back, which is very different than an open sport, you know, in football or soccer or basketball, lacrosse, where someone's going to try to get to you, you need to do something more kind of intuitively, people will call it instinctive or reflexive. But in golf, it's not like that. So it's very, very demanding mentally to bring yourself in and out of that. If you look at high-performing business execs, they have very similar personality styles as high-level performers in all sports. But that's not how they do their work. They immerse themselves, and they're doing it for a long period of time. So try and do it and get out of it, and try and do it and get out of it. And try to gather all the information you can. And within 1.3 to 1.5 seconds, make a decision and perform. It's at the highest level you can. Nothing else is like it. So that's one of the reasons why golfers see us. The second highest group is tennis players.
1: Is it so like a similar? It's kind of reactive, more reactive though.
0: It is more reactive, but you know, it's um, it's y- 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 the competitor continues to be the same person. Like in football, there's your distractions are many. Right. So, uh, and it is, uh, you know, it is an, an open sport. Things are changing. The court doesn't change, like basketball doesn't change. Basketball requires, you know, the ability to interact with other players and sit, get on the foul line. It's almost like making a putt. You okay. Know? So that's what we know. Um. The other thing I was going to ask you was
1: so like a lot of times a lot of athletes transition from whatever the sport they're that they, they I don't know whatever it was football, basketball, baseball to golf. So is do you think there's a reason for that?
0: Yeah, I think there's a great reason for that. I mean, it's the one sport that you can be competitive in your entire life. No matter what age you are, you can always play golf and you can always compete. Um so for Guys who were professional athletes, girls that are professional athletes, who move over to golf, they can either try to become professional. We've certainly seen you know, players try to do that. Um, or they can do it as an amateur and okay. still compete. And so athletes are competitive. What do you do with your competitive uh, nature or process when you're no longer competing in a sport? And that becomes a problem for a lot of players. That's a lot of players There's become depressed. a problem depressed. for me, for sure. Yes. A lot of players will become depressed when they don't see those opportunities so professional athletes are you know continuously facing those kinds of things so i think that golf as demanding as it is and we just went over and because you can compete no matter where you are in the world
1: right yeah it's uh, i think it's interesting and it, th- finding a new competitive outlet is like so important for me it was right. it ended up being crossfit which i eventually hurt myself too so now i'm playing more golf <laughs> but, <There you> know. <laughs> a lot
0: safer so are
1: there any, like, obscure sports that you've helped athletes with? I, I think yes. did you have, like, racing. Like uh,
0: yes. Well, I have a racing background. That's how I got into oh, it. But cool. I did have someone uh, in NASCAR. I guess the obscure things are things like billiards. Uh, I so can see that. I had it's a kind world, of like a golf. Yeah. Oh. I had a world billiards nice. champion. And I had someone who was on the uh, Texas Hold'em Tour. Uh, oh, wow. At a, at a very high level, level at, uh, at the final table a couple of years ago. So they come in uh, because of their uh, desire to be a great competitor. I uh, had a former um, uh, U.S. Olympian come see me uh, to try to make it to Texas Hold'em.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: because the competitive nature, again, you know, after winning gold medals, uh, was now in a place where he wanted to continue to be competitive, and so he's looking for the avenue to do that in, and that's what he found.
1: Interesting. The The poker thing I'm curious about because... Like, what kind of things do you, th- do they want to, like, is it, like, how to bluff better? Like, how to, like, you know.
0: It, something, it was was almost like that. I mean, really what it had to do with was, you know, we describe as focused effort. You know, really being able to maintain attention and not become distracted by what goes on in competition. So, when you take a look at what happens under anxiety, um the brain actually doesn't analyze as effectively. I may have shown you pictures of the brain, but if you, if you take a look at positron emission tomography, PET scans, you'll see that the left side of the brain heats up. And once that occurs, the first thing that goes away is analysis. So in cards, uh, you know, there's a lot of analysis. So that's what was happening, if there were some distractions externally, internally. You needed to r- learn how to remain m- more focused.
1: Okay. I'm kind of curious, too, about... And, like, with the whole bluffing thing because a lot of athletes, including (laughs) myself, can, like, you know, they could be hurt, but they could hide being hurt or they feel a certain way, but they're really good at, like, suppressing, you know, certain things. So going from being an athlete to playing poker in some ways makes a lot of sense to me. Do you agree with that or –
0: well, I think you know. As whatever we're going to look at is either confidence or efficacy, there's right. something about competitors, right? You want to be the best that you can. Yeah. So I think it will certainly drive you, and whatever's required to do that. So, uh, you might look at it in in terms of you know, whether it's body language or, or bluffing, or trying to influence your opponent.
1: All right. How, d- does mindset differ by gender? Like from what you've you've seen, when you have female athletes versus male athletes, do you have to approach them differently?
0: That's an excellent question. Um, I would say that it has to do more, I think, with what's called temperament and personality than I do think with gender. Although when I was uh, racing uh, open-wheel cars, we had several female drivers. And one of the things about them was that their mindset was to master uh, the mechanics of driving a car. And they would always say, fast is last. And so in spite of the fact that they were not fast in the beginning stages of training... Their mindset was to master the basic skills and then the speed, which is what guys got so excited about. So they went into this in a very different way, fast as last. Now the other thing about females, you'll see this in certainly female astronauts, they have a larger corpus callosum than men have. Men won't like to hear that, but it's true.
1: It's size.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's size. And as a result of that, they can coordinate a bunch of different things. So their experience in life is that they can coordinate the left side, right side hemisphere differently than men do. So um, I found with most athletes, I wouldn't describe them all as open minded. Um, but they, most athletes are here because they want to be more competitive. And so if you're open-minded, we're going to get there. And if you're not, then we're not. By the way, the great book is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Okay. Out of I'll link Stanford. all these books
1: up in the show notes. Okay, great. Um, another thing I'm curious about in racing is the fear, you know, like what's the, you're pushing the limits in terms of speed, but at the same time you're, the faster you go, you're probably more likely to have a crash and that crash is going to be worse if you're going faster do you help the athletes kind of like no one to tone it down no one to push it up or you know how fear-based is the sport of racing
0: well um you know i would say first of all the uh, the heart rate of a race car driver is quicker than any athlete in the world so if you take while they're going while they're racing yeah. so if you take a look at Formula well, 1 drivers. Because they're
1: drivers. sitting in the car and they don't get any exercise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, th- 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 these guys are pretty fit. Um, any case, so if you look at them, you'll see in some races, obviously you're changing drivers out for that. So if, um, if we're looking at, um, let's look at anxiety versus fear. All right. So would you go to a Super Bowl game if you knew who won? No, that would be pretty boring. Okay. So before every event, every player is wondering who's going to win and how well they're going to do. So we would call that anxiety. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And we have arousal levels, and it gets...
1: That's like with anything you do. That's anything right. Anything that's new, yeah.
0: That's right. So um, we expect that there are arousal levels in anxiety. Fear is, is based upon something that is real. So going very fast and not having brakes in your car, that would be very frightening. Right. And if you see some things that happen in NASCAR, let alone what goes on in Formula One. Uh, in football, obviously, injuries do take place. So if a person doesn't have a, a very good respect for what you might describe as fear, things that have a reality to them, I think that that could be a problem. Um, and I think you can see that there are some athletes that aren't frightened and put themselves in risky places and not even talking about what's going on in the field. Okay. They're making some pretty poor judgments. Outside, yeah. That's right, because they're not respecting the fear about what could happen to them if they do something that's inappropriate. So on the field, I would say anxiety is a part. You don't know what's going to happen. If you're frightened, your performance will depreciate. So I would think even when, you know, working with race car drivers, um, they're not really frightened. By the way, just so you know my background, uh, if you go to the Indianapolis 500 website and look up 1919, you'll see my grandfather's name who raced in the Indianapolis 500. He was a riding mechanic. And unfortunately... um, uh, the uh, driver hit the wall and uh, was killed. My grandfather survived, um, so clearly that was a pretty frightening experience. But uh, I, it's not stopped me. When the reason I got into sports psychology is, I came down a downhill at Lime Rock. I lifted and spun the car and put the back end into the guardrail and took out another car. I had a concussion and a broken arm, and so I had to. Learn how not to be frightened coming down a downhill. Imagine going down a downhill and having your foot on the gas pedal when right, you're making yeah. a turn. Okay, uh, That's what you have to that's do. Your
1: brain telling you to do the exact opposite. Exactly, <laughs> but then you can't win.
0: So um, I had to learn how not to become frightened. Um, and I found out how to do that. I learned through my clinical work, and that's how I got into sports psychology.
1: Interesting. That was one of my questions, too. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was a good time to bring up a, a current event that I had mentioned to you before. Uh, yesterday, the New York Jets held this commissioner's fan forum, where Roger Goodell came, and one of the Jets rookies, Jamal Adams, he made a comment. I think I'm assuming he was asked a question about CTE, because a lot of research has come out in the last week or two about CTE, and he he said that the football field is would be the perfect place to die. This is a kid who's like fresh out of college, and then one of the a veteran NFL player, uh, Mar- Martellus Bennett. Uh, he tweeted out saying that i hope these young cats are willing to d- i hope these w- i hope these young cats that are willing to die for the game of football find a higher purpose in life so what are what are your thoughts on that you, you kind of talked about like not having the fear when you should have fear in, in some places so what are the dangers of having that mindset
0: well first of all you know I, I don't know the person who said this and as we had a brief discussion about this i'm wondering whether he's saying that you know if he's going to live his life and that he was going to die doing something that he thoroughly enjoyed. I think that's a lot different than saying I'm willing to die for football. Right. So I, I think we need to look at the context. And so, not having read that or seen the context that it was set in, that I think is a really important purpose. So we go back to this whole thing about mindset. What's the person's mindset who's making the interpretation of what somebody else is saying? Right. You know. So are we open-minded to understand? Is this kid saying something like? Right look, I really love this sport, and if I have to die, this is where I want to do it. That's a lot different than saying, I'm going to give up my life to play football. Eh, I, I don't think those things are the same. And so one of the problems, I think, with humans is that we try to ascribe purposes to things that we really don't know. That's true. It's really yeah. kind of hard. Uh, you know, Actually, in my, a lot of my work, people ask me why I do this, uh, or why, why are they doing certain behaviors. And I'll say, I don't think I can tell you why, but I can tell you what you can do to change it. So I don't frequently look at... Trying to assess why, because a lot of times there's a there's a lot of suggestibility and interpretation in our own experiences yeah, in the media, in general, and the media yeah. right? So,
1: no, I I get that, and I think that's a easier way to handle, I guess, the statements that that he was saying. I I just think of like my immediate thoughts, where like I've interviewed Eric LeGrand, I almost died playing football, and when you're actually in those situations, like. It's scary as hell. Like Eric the Grand, like thought he was dying on the field because he
0: couldn't breathe. Yeah,
1: I'm like, try to put yourself in his shoes. Like yeah. before you make a statement like that, because like, yeah. there's people who have have come close. Yes, so. that's right. And it's, I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't want to, you know, die on the field. So, right. And I'm, and sitting next to Roger Goodell when he said it, I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know how how good of a, PR thing that would be for the sport of football if that actually did happen. Mm-hmm. Um but as we kind of start to to wrap things up here you know how common do injured athletes come to you versus like athletes who come to you for performance
0: well, Most athletes come to me for performance I have a fair number of people that are here because of rehabilitation and a lot of times it is because of their apprehension about being able to get back either because they might get re-injured or because they might not execute at the highest higher level that they had before so those are two basic reasons, and so we have to address both of those.
1: So how do you address? We kind of already addressed coming back and trying to perform at the same level. But what about the people who aren't quite performing at the same level again? Like how do you work with those clients?
0: Uh, you know, you have to again look at the truth and come to a level of acceptance. And uh, so some people will recognize that it's their fear that's actually influ- influencing their performance. At a soccer player who um, was a very, very good soccer player but was frightened because of an injury to the ankle um, about being able to plant her foot and being able to cut effectively. She kept getting injured. In my mind, I think that it was because she was so tentative. So she was afraid, and as a result of the fear, she wasn't performing at a high enough level, and as a result of that, she got injured again. Right.
1: So Kind of like what Kevin Malice said. Well... You're, you're thinking about it, so...
0: Yeah, so so that's something we have to help them understand and some athletes are worried about that they're they're actually are aware that their consciousness about the injury might prevent them from performing at a higher level okay and so you know it, it's a mindset thing and so we'll work a lot with imagery and you know mental rehearsal and try to get them to get past that
1: so are those some of the things that like what what can the listeners do like what's an easy thing that the listeners can do to improve their mindset for performance or if they're injured
0: well, the best thing I can tell you is that the um the athlete needs to be present in the moment. So, you know, in the uh in the example of um thinking about what you're not able to do, we want to move you away from that. So we really want to try to get you to be present and we want your attention to be where it needs to be. So this may sound strange, but it's a good example of what's called attentional shifting. If you listen to music, you can listen to the whole song, but you can shift your attention to the vocal, to the bass right to the harmony right and that's what's required in sport is to place your attention where it needs to be so if your attention's on inside how you feel about it versus what you need to do to execute that's when problems start to happen so whether you're an athlete that's injured and you're concerned about re-injury or you're an athlete who isn't injured but you're worried about performance and the score if your attention's not on what you have to execute you won't perform at a high level So this whole process of attentional shifting, which is part of what that test measures, is how I train athletes. Where's your attention just before, you know, execution?
1: Right. Just like you told me to think about the football play instead of executing the throw. Right.
0: Well, what we wanted to do with you then was to move you away from some negative ideas. Right. And then you saw that your subconscious mind took over. And so I would say one of the most important things is to figure out where your attention needs to be. We don't want you to be thinking during the execution, but we want you to be focused. So there's a, there's a lot different. When you look at playing golf, you can look at the golf ball, but your, your mind might be on whether or not you're going to hit it. You can look at the golf ball and actually feel what it's like to come through the ball. And when your attention's on a feeling, your performance is much greater than the outcome. Right. So that's what we try to do is figure out where the attention is and where the distractibility is. And then we, we teach players how to modify that.
1: Okay, great. Um, last question. I just want to give a, a, a little nugget of information for the transitioning athletes like myself uh, at, at one point in time. Like, What advice do you have for improving the mindset of transitioning athletes, so life after sports? Because that obviously yeah. is a... A, a huge deal for a lot of people yeah
0: well you know having seen a lot of young people you know whether they're moving out of sports or they're moving in, out of college and are not going to be playing collegiate sports or something along those lines If sport is important to them, I always try to help them find other ways to get jobs within sports. So like some of the work that you do is a good example. So you might not be competing on the football field or baseball field or even across it at this point, but there's something about your own competition within yourself. So a lot of the work I do with people transitioning as I do with executives is to take a look at every moment of every day. You have the opportunity to make a decision that is an excellent decision. My work with all players is about excellence, it's not about winning. You're, the excellence in the way in which you think, the w- excellence in the way in which you perform, that happens the rest of your life. So although you might not be competing in sport, you can continue to compete with yourself and use yourself at your highest level.
1: You know, I completely agree with that. And it really wasn't, like, even when I had the CrossFit thing, like, it was fun, I guess, while it lasted, and, Like I got to do competition and stuff, but... It really wasn't until I had the podcast where I really felt like, I don't know, like I wasn't just a football player. You know, I feel like with the CrossFit thing, I was still kind of stuck in that mentality of the same thoughts that I had of like what gave me worth in football were the same things that kind of fueled my worth, I guess, in CrossFit. But here, continually trying to improve the podcast like every single day and I can really immerse myself in this something that I'm really passionate about. It's been a huge help in trying to like re-identify, I guess, like who I really am and what I can offer to the world. So,
0: there's a great example. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Um, so, where can people follow you on like social media and find you online? And
0: sure, thank you very much. Well, um, my Twitter handle is Dr. Nick Golf and um i'm not really even sure what my instagram one is but if you i'll link it all uh, up okay very okay, if good people go to the and show it,
1: notes it'll everything will be there
0: you can always go to my website at uh, dr nick or dr nick uh, that's an easy way to reach me
1: perfect dr nick thank you very much for your time thank and you, for Kevin. sharing your knowledge on the podcast and also for having a huge impact in my life and my transition to life after sports and getting me through the, the hard times and Anyone who's out there who's on the fence about seeing a sports psychologist, I highly recommend it. And I know a lot of the athletes who have I've interviewed on the podcast have uh, seen benefits from using or from uh, using sports psychologists. So it's definitely a, a positive tool to add to your arsenal.
0: Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure seeing you again.
1: Thank you.